Just a note at the top of this sermon that um, I have to give credit to Chris Rapazzini, who preached on the passage that I have, uh, that I'm going to preach on. He sparked a lot of my thinking, and some of his sermon is liberally sprinkled throughout. I just wanted to give him credit. Now, since we last met, we have closed one calendar year and opened another. And that step out of 2023 into 2024 took a second at the stroke of midnight on December 31st. It's an important enough second in time that many of us stayed up for it. Let me see a show of hands. Anybody? Okay. All right. And then some of us immediately went to bed at 12.01. Show of hands. Okay. So, yeah. But that one step feels bigger than the, than the second in time that it is. A new year sparks ideas, new hopes, resolutions, thoughts of newness, new beginnings. We take the garbage out from the previous year and we are ready for a brand new start. It's a little bit how it feels like leading up to that moment, but reality is quite different altogether. I met someone on January 2nd who asked me how my year was going, and I said, oh, okay, so far, with a sigh of relief, because in reality, when you take your garbage to the curb, you have already lined your trash can inside the house ready for more to come. But instead of, uh, so instead of, uh, starting the new year by trying to implement a brand new us, which we then try to carry forward into the new year. Let me encourage us to begin at the end. Let us start by looking not backwards at who we have been and uh, trying to change that, but looking ahead to the end, the very end, the goal line, it, maybe it's out of sight, to the end of life's marathon, I'm saying begin the new year with the end in mind. Now, we have just come through an Advent season focused on the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. That's his first coming. It's so vitally important to us. We take a whole month to celebrate that. Um, but there will be a second Advent, a second coming. In some churches, this is all they talk about, the end times and the judgment and we have overcorrected, I feel, in the other direction. I really was trying to remember the last time I preached on this. We mentioned the second coming in youth group a few months ago, and the kids said, oh, we know all about that. That's when Jesus got out of the tomb at Easter time. And there's some logic to that, because, you know, he was dead, and then he came back. So they thought that was a second coming. But no, the resurrection is still within the framework of the first coming, and the second has not yet happened. That's in the future from us today. Jesus will come back one glorious day, and I am suggesting that we start the year 2024 by looking at, down the arc of history to the end, to that second coming of Jesus, and that by focusing on that, we use his coming to fuel our hopes and our actions that we are stimulated and energized, not from the past to move forward, but from the future. We take this approach because Jesus himself prepared his disciples for a future 
without him being present in the flesh. He prepared them with the knowledge, the truth, that he would surely be coming back for them, preparing them with a motivation to get their house in order, not just for their immediate future, but also for the far final end. Today we will be reading in Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, starting there. For it is as if, now before we go any further, it, we have to define what the it is that Jesus is referencing. And in chapter 24, Jesus has been talking about the coming of the Son of Man, and there's judgment, there's power, there's apocalyptic language. And by the time we've come to our passage, Jesus has told three parables about the coming kingdom of heaven. And this will be, no, this one is the third. Two others and this is the third. For it, Christ's coming, the future kingdom of heaven, is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. What we know about this man is that he is going to be gone a long time, and we know he is wealthy because he has eight talents. A talent is a specific amount of money. In today's currency, each talent would be $300,000. And we know this man is generous because he doesn't take his wealth with him, but he entrusts it, there's a lot of trust involved in that, to his servants, slaves, our passage says. And I don't know how you would feel about giving control over your wealth into the hands of slaves or servants. Employee is not quite the modern equivalent of this position, but I don't know that I'd trust any employee either. No one would do this without tight oversight and control. If we do the math, we see that the first one receives one and a half million dollars, the second one receives $600,000, and the third one a mere $300,000. So think about briefcases with cold hard cash and hand it over to you. What would you do with it? Verse 16, the one who had received five talents went off at once and noticed the immediacy at once, he, this man understood the assignment, and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. This is a cautious, worried one who did not want to lose what he had been entrusted with. <coughs> Now, who here resonates with the entrepreneurial spirit of the first two servants, okay? Like just the thought of getting your hands on that cash and doing something with it is energizing to you. And who here can see themselves in the third position of being very afraid that you're going to lose it, okay? Yes. Yep. Verse 19. After a long time... If you were reading that verse on the screen, your eye would have skipped to the next word. And your long time in your head would have been less than a second long. But the long time, after a long time, I just thought we had to pause 
right here for a few minutes until we get restless with the waiting. After a long time. Because this is where we find ourselves today when it comes to Christ's second coming. It has been such a long time since Jesus told us he was returning. All the writers in the New Testament expected it to be within their lifetime or shortly after. It's been such a long time, 2,000 years or more now. And all we know about the timing of his coming is that Jesus is coming for sure, that no one knows the hour, and that we are one day closer to his coming than we were yesterday. After a long time. We know that Christ's community is supposed to live in active expectation of him coming and to be alert. After a long time. You feel those days and months and years ticking by. This cannot be overstated. In the parable, this is so long that the servants were wondering if he was ever going to come back. Okay, we're going to continue with that verse. After a long time, pause, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. In other words, the master is investigating, I'm back now, what did you do with the things I entrusted you, what did you do with those briefcases of cash, the talents that I gave you. I know you may have forgotten this, but they weren't yours to begin with, and they never were yours, really. They were mine and have always been mine, so what have you done with them? I want to know, what have you done with this opportunity that I gave you? Verse 20, then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, well done, good and trustworthy slaves, slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents came, came, also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, these two weren't told to double their money specifically, but they had the end in mind at the beginning. And they knew the master would come back and demand an accounting from them. And now, upon the master's return, they are commended by their master. So at this point, something shifts, and we start to get a feeling in the pit of our stomach because the third one was different than the first two. How's he going to account for his, his talent? Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward saying, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seeds, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here you have what is yours. So what he's saying is he didn't lose the money. He didn't squander the money. He didn't miss spend it. In fact, he didn't even spend a penny of that money that didn't belong to him. The money was secure with him. Isn't the master so pleased that he kept the money safe? Now, that's the best spin I can put on it. But can you sense in the man's answer a note of blame to the master? Because you are a hard man, I did what I did. 
That's why I hid it. Sounds like he's excusing himself and criticizing the master. You're really responsible for the way I handle this money. And this is a surprise to us. The idea we had gotten of the master was that he was a generous man. Especially when he rewarded the first two servants. They got a handsome reward, but this third servant is characterizing his master as harsh and unjust, reaping what he did not sow. He is saying his relationship with his master is one of fear and duty. Verse 26, but his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow and gather where I do not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with the ten talents. Now this is a surprise to us. Why not give the talent to the second servant who now only has four and kind of even it up a little bit? But the parable is not about fairness. And in fact, right now, Jesus is going to tell us what this parable is all about. Verse 29. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. So let that verse soak in. This is what Jesus has been driving at. And it's really very strong words. Do we like these words? Our ideas of fairness kind of get in the way of what Jesus is saying. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Quite a different matter than entering into the joy of their master, right? It's another surprise. It's not until the end that the reader realizes that the vast amount of money originally thought to be entrusted to the servants only to manage has now been given back to them. The master doesn't intend on taking any of his money back for himself. Isn't that interesting? But only the third servant thought about it, continually regarded that money as his master's. And so we see now that Jesus really is talking about the gift of grace rather than the stewardship of property and what we do with the grace he gives us. If we use what God gives us to please him, he will give us even more. But, this is the hard piece, if we don't use his gifts in a way that pleases him, if we selfishly hoard them for ourselves, if we don't develop his gifts to us, if we don't lean into them, he will take them away. I told my sister I was going to preach on the parable of the talents, and she said, oh, that one makes me feel so bad. Like she hasn't worked hard enough with what she has been given. And there is obviously hard work and discipline involved in following Jesus. So she got part of that right. God gives us a humbling responsibility when he frees us from sin. But the motivation, the impetus for discipline comes from what we believe of our master Jesus. Do we see him as a hard task 
master, a spoiler, unjustly squeezing the last bit of fun and life out of us, the one who says no to us all the time, wagging his ear. Is that our view of him? Or do we see his presence as the place where joy goes to live? So that it becomes our goal to enter into his joy. Do we strive to please him because we are so well loved by him? We are so safe in his love so that when we put the gifts he gives us to work, we are really just loving him back. And that gives us pleasure. Hopefully this Christmas we all gave gifts. If you did, did you have fun giving your gifts this year? Did you enjoy thinking about the other person opening up your gifts and that you knew that you had really hit on a good one? Now, there are duds when you give gifts, always. But did you give a good gift that you enjoyed giving this year? This meme says, how do you know your gift is awesome? The giver is so excited they want you to have it early. So I want you to know that God is an excellent gift giver. And can we see that when we use the gifts that God gives us, it can't help but multiply, rippling out in benefits far beyond that first use of it. This really doesn't come out of that parable of talents, but when God gives us gifts, he himself works through our gifts, and he he's the multiplier of our gifts and benefits to others and benefits to ourselves. It's not just us working and toiling and drudging along for the sake of our taskmaster. It's God's power that works within us that makes it a joy to be disciplined and to work for him then. Well, it may just be a little about working harder at our gifts this year if we have been very lax last year, if we've been selfish, if we have buried God's gifts until now. But it is so much more about the joy of seeing God at work in our lives, multiplying beyond what we are capable of. So what does this look like? I'm going to give a few practical examples, and then you can think of your own also. This year, we are all going to be given opportunities. And the question is, what are you going to do with the opportunities that God gives you? Now, here's what the question is not. Why didn't I get as many as that person? And here's what it also is not. What if I don't get any opportunities? Because no matter your circumstances, opportunities will come. The question is, how am I going to leverage the opportunities, the gifts that the Lord has given me? Whether it's one or two or five, how are we going to use the gifts that God has entrusted to us? So what does that look like? For some of you, your family will be growing your household will be growing in the next year. We have one person in our midst that we know of who is having a baby. Maybe a child comes home from college. Maybe a parent or a relative is moving in. Your family and your household are going to grow. What are you going to do with that opportunity? At the end of their stay with you, what do you hope it looks like? 
How can you leverage the time you spend with them to point them to God's words and God's ways? Whether it's 18 years or two years or six months, what do you want the end to look like? Begin with the end in mind. And some of you may be starting new romantic relationships in this year. If God is going to put someone into your pathway, you need to enter into that relationship with, with an idea of where you want it to go, to date with intentionality. Who are we, who are you becoming in this relationship? How is the other person growing? in this relationship? How are you pointing to God in your relationship? For many of us, there are probably things in this new year that we either need to stop doing or we need to start doing. But begin with the end in mind. Maybe it's finally starting to make a, and live off of a monthly budget. Maybe it's making a will or a trust for your family because the end is coming whether you like it or not. Some of us may need to stop a habit or an addiction. Some of us may need to start or to continue the hard work towards mental health. Maybe it is starting to have a prayer time with your family or with your friends and you've been wanting to do it. Some of us need to stop arguing and fighting with our spouse. I didn't hear an amen. Or exasperating, or exasperating our children. I thought, okay, I thought so. I, thought. <laughs> I expected it from a household over there, not a household in my own household. What do you want them to say about you five years down the line? 10 years down the line, 20 years down the road, because they will say something. So begin with the end in mind. God will put people in our way that have not, we have not met yet. He will bring people to us that we need, and he will bring people who need us. He will bring people our way who need a word of hope, a word of love, a word of salvation. So maybe this year we commit to pay attention to be open to divine appointments, to be attuned to the Holy Spirit so that God can use us in someone else's life. And that kind of intentionality starts with prayer. Maybe we need to be in that kind of a prayer this year. And finally, the big picture. At some point in time, Jesus will be returning. The master is coming back and he is going to settle accounts. He's coming back to see what we did with all the opportunities he gave us. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. So this year begin with Jesus, the end, in mind. And imagine what it will be like after your time on this earth is over when you meet Jesus face to face. When the two of you are going through a slideshow of your life, what do you want his response to be? What, what do you want his reaction to be? Do you want to be like the reaction of the master had with a servant who buried his opportunity? 
Or would you want him to put his arm around you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come share in your master's happiness. Our master wants nothing more than to share his joy with not just his servants, but his sons and daughters. So this new year, begin at the end. Let's bow our heads. Well, Lord, we have a lot of feelings about this passage, and we do kind of feel like we may have fallen short of it. I share my sister's feeling of, oh, dear, feeling like we have fallen short of it. So, God, I pray you would motivate us and move us and help us, Lord, to have you more in mind, have the joy of you more in mind that we would not use our gifts out of a sense of duty so much as out of love and joy for you. And multiply the benefits to us, Lord. Multiply the, the ripple effects, the joys of it to us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.